Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a urologist discusses what's involved in diagnosing and treating male infertility. They either come in uh, directly uh, because they've been having trouble having a baby with their partner, or they'll be referred to me from their partner's OBGYN doctor or reproductive specialist. A pediatric rheumatologist tells about the proliferation of products containing CBD, a naturally occurring compound in the cannabis plant. We see it in creams and lotions. We're seeing it in different forms of food, such as uh, candies, gummies, um, even coffee. And an emergency physician discusses the management of head injuries. As far as we can tell, concussion is a brain injury and it's probably damaged to the neurons of the brain, but we can't see it with a CAT scan, we can't see it with an MRI. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll explore the proliferation of CBD oils and balms and other products and whether they offer pain relief with a pediatric rheumatologist. Then, we'll hear all about head injuries and traumatic brain injuries and what to expect when you arrive at the hospital emergency department with an emergency physician. But first, we'll talk with a urologist who specializes in treating male infertility. When a couple is not having success conceiving, both men and women can seek medical evaluation for help understanding why. Dr. J.C. Trussell is a urologist at Upstate who cares for quite a few men who are struggling with infertility, and he's with me in the HealthLink on Air studio today to talk about evaluation and treatment of male infertility. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Now, when you're seeing a man for the first time, how does that visit typically go? What, what's involved in the first visit? They either come in uh, directly uh, because they've been having trouble having a baby with their partner, uh, but probably 80% of the time they'll be referred to me from their partner's OBGYN doctor or reproductive specialist. And so is there already a suspicion that it's a male issue versus a female or...? That is about 50-50. So half the time they'll come in with a semen analysis, which is the cornerstone of, of a male evaluation. And that semen analysis is has some abnormal features to it. Uh, other times it's them arriving with no uh, workup at all. And then I would perform a semen analysis, a physical examination, uh, review their history to make sure there's no exposures uh, to things like heat, radiation, pesticides. Uh, that could cause a, a problem, and sometimes draw some blood work. But the key is the semen analysis as, as the cornerstone or the first step for determining a guy's fertility. So if they haven't had that done, that's probably one of the first things that's going to need to be done. That's correct. Okay. Now, does, um, does the partner need to be present at the appointment? The partner does not need to be present. Um, I do ask that the partner gets their own evaluation because... Uh, half of the time, when an infertile couple presents for evaluation, there's a female alone issue. Half the time, there's a male issue. However, 20% of the time of that male, there's a combination of a male and a female. So 30% of the time, there's only a male issue. 20% of the time, there's a male and a female issue. And 50% of the time, a female-only issue. Okay. Now, there's a definition for infertility too, right? That's correct. It's a, a couple trying unsuccessfully to conceive for one year. However, that definition doesn't hold if you think or the couple thinks that there's an infertility issue with either the male or the female. They can come in and be evaluated right away. Kind of get started sooner. Okay. Now, for semen analysis, what what is being looked for? What are you analyzing it for? There's four main categories that we look at within the semen analysis. One is the volume of the fluid. The second is the number of sperm per droplet called the sperm concentration. For the sperm to make it up the uterus and out the fallopian tube to get to the egg, it needs to be motile and needs to have a normal shape. I use shape as uh, like a car going from point A to point B. It needs to have four wheels, and if the shape is abnormal, like three wheels or two wheels, a couple wheels missing, it's not going to make it that long distance to the egg. So we look at the volume, the sperm concentration, the motility, the fact that it moves, and the fact that it has a normal shape, like a car with four wheels. 
So any of those things could go wrong or, or more than one of those things could be wrong. Often it's more than one thing uh, being abnormal. Well, I want to talk about what you do when you do find something wrong, but um, is there any way for a man to predict ahead of time that he would have infertility issues before trying to conceive? Occasionally, if uh, there was trauma, radiation exposure, uh, but most of the time, 70% of the time, uh, the men come in and, and a big medical term is idiopathic infertility, which simply means we have no idea why they're infertile but there'll be abnormalities on the semen analysis nonetheless. Okay. Well, what do you do when you get that analysis back? I review it with the uh, patient, and if there's abnormalities on the semen analysis, we'll often do uh, blood work. A common problem for an infertile man is to have some dilated veins, like varicose veins on, on your leg. These dilated veins can be in your scrotum, which heats up the testes too much and makes them not work very well. We also check blood work, uh, particularly looking at testosterone levels and also looking at uh, some genetic tests if the sperm count is, is less than a critical level. Okay. Um, so are you able, you mentioned dilated veins. Do you, do you, is there a way to repair those? or? Yes, that is one of the most common uh, diagnoses for men men's inability to have a, a baby. Um, if, they're, if they've never had a baby, the chance of these dilated veins are 30%. If they've had a child and are diffi having difficulty with a second or third child, the chance of having these dilated veins are 70%. And uh, tying them off microscopically is, is a good option and improves the sperm count in 70% of these men. Okay. And then you mentioned testosterone levels. So they may be too low or too high? Yes, the uh, testosterone level uh, is often too low uh, in these patients. We don't know exactly why that happens, uh, but replacing testosterone uh, is not a good idea as testosterone patches or gels or injections will most often turn that guy's sperm count very close to zero. Uh, what we do in a guy with low testosterone is trick the brain into screaming at the testicles using a pill, a medication, that, that will send down more signal to the testes to get in, to work harder and give off more natural testosterone and to give off more sperm cells. Interesting. I bet people would think, though, that, the like you were saying, the, the um, is it a gel? Uh, these over-the-counter sort, sorts of remedies are actually going to backfire. They do backfire. Huh. And uh, it's not uncommon for guys to come and see me on testosterone with another provider hoping that it will improve their fertility, when in reality it, it makes it worse. Wow. Um, at what point do you recommend genetic testing, or do you ever? Yes, definitely. So a normal sperm count would be a, a sperm concentration greater than 15 million sperm per cc per, per unit. We recommend genetic testing when that sperm count is less than 5 million sperm per unit per cc. Okay. And then genetic con testing can show you whether this is something that's been passed on from his family or... There are three things that we look for. Yes, one can be passed on from your father, and that is some Y chromosome microdeletion, which is um, uh, the Y chromosome makes a man a male. The woman has two X's. So on that Y chromosome, there's uh, three areas that could be missing. And if it's missing, it often causes very low to no sperm. The second is cystic fibrosis. That is a, uh, a genetic condition that uh, can be recessive where you don't even know you have it. And one side effect of cystic fibrosis is to have scarring of your vas tubes, which is similar to having a vasectomy where the tube is actually blocked. That person has normal testes, has normal sperm production, but is blocked by the scarring of the vas tube. And the third it is some genetic issues like Klinefelter's or Kalman syndrome that uh, the patient can can live with. They look normal. They they live a normal length of time, but their sperm production is is declined. Okay, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. J.C. Trussell. He's an associate professor of urology at Upstate, who specializes in male infertility. So let's talk about the causes of male infertility. I know you test for exposures and things, but are exposures to chemicals a cause of infertility? That's a they're a rare cause, but uh, are noted on our history. Uh, common exposures would be radiation, pesticides, uh, 
chemotherapy. If somebody has had a, a cancer treatment and they've been exposed to chemo, some chemo agents uh, significantly uh, cause a reduction in sperm production. Others don't cause uh, a, a big deal. Uh, we also look at heat exposures like saunas and hot tubs that can significantly drop the sperm count. Um, smoking uh, can drop the sperm count, although alcohol uh, usually has to be excessive to be a problem. What about marijuana use? Marijuana use historically has has been a, a no-no. It was part of my training to ask guys about marijuana, and historically it's dropped uh, the sperm count. However, some more recent research, um, they did a paper survey of United States couples attempting to conceive, and they demonstrated that there was no association between those who never smoked marijuana and those who had uh infrequent use of marijuana, specifically looking at the time till conception, meaning the time that the couple said, hey, let's have a baby, and the time that they uh, were pregnant. Huh, interesting. So those are some things that maybe can contribute to infertility. Are there some things that men can do to increase their chances or boost their fertility? Or is there some magic food to eat or pill to take? Or? Sure, yeah, there's there's no magic uh, food to eat, uh, avoiding heat, avoiding hot tubs, saunas, that helps a lot. There's antioxidant tablets, which are over-the-counter tablets like a vitamin C, selenium, that you can take to improve the DNA quality of the sperm. These antioxidants over-the-counter supplements do not improve sperm numbers or motility or shape, but can improve the DNA. And if the DNA is better, there's a smaller chance, a lesser chance for a miscarriage. Um, as mentioned before, we could check uh, blood tests for testosterone, and sometimes we can uh, use a, a pill called clomiphene citrate to uh, improve sperm counts in that regard. Interesting. Uh, does male infertility increase a man's chances for testicular or high-grade prostate cancer? Is this a signal that you may have some other... There is no direct signal to okay. uh, prostate cancer or other uh, cancers. Although, having said that, if a guy comes in and he's had a normal sperm count and it's suddenly dropped and there's no other changes, we have to very carefully do a testicular exam because that person may have developed testicular cancer and uh, that would need to be treated. And that's important because before treatment with, with surgery or with chemotherapy, we would want to uh, recommend that that patient undergo uh, sperm cryopreservation to preserve sperm because chemo in that regard would often drop their sperm count close to zero. Okay. Is it a biomarker for other medical issues, um, cardiovascular, metabolic, autoimmune diseases, if a man is struggling with fertility? Only indirectly. So there are some early literature that demonstrates these dilated veins I talked about earlier, these varicose veins in the scrotum. Those men may have a decline in their sperm, uh, in their testosterone level. So having fixed those veins surgically for fertility, when we go back and look at the testosterone levels, they tend to bump up about 100 to 150 points. So a normal testosterone is 300 to 1,000. And so they may go from 250 to 350 or even 400. That's not evaluated prospectively, meaning we intend to improve their testosterone by tying these veins off, but it is something to keep in the back of our mind. How often are you uh, successful in helping a man be able to conceive? We're pretty successful um, in improving sperm counts. Um, in terms of that translating into a pregnancy, it's harder to tell in part because these clients... Uh, when they have a baby, they sometimes let me know. A lot of times I, I just lose them to follow up where they start raising their family. Moreover, the female part is more involved and requires a reproductive endocrinologist. And uh, as I'm improving the sperm, the man then goes with his improved sperm parameters to the reproductive doctor, to the female side, and I can lose touch with them as they pursue right. their treatment on the uh, female portion called the reproductive endocrinology. Uh, like doctors. you said, uh, a number of the cases have factors for male and female that have to be corrected. That's correct. Before. Yeah. And if I can't get the sperm count up high enough over that 15 million threshold, I then strongly recommend that the partner, the female goes to a reproductive endocrinologist to pursue other 
options besides natural conception, and that would include intrauterine insemination, which is like a turkey baster insertion of sperm into the uterus, and the second one is ICSI or in vitro fertilization where the eggs are removed from the female and one sperm from the male's ejaculate goes into the each egg to make a baby. So lots more options out there today. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Uh, my guest has been Associate Professor of Urology, Dr. J.C. Trussell. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, do CBD products provide relief? Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Cannabidiol, or CBD, seems to be everywhere these days. You can buy it in pill form or in lotions and oils, gummy candies, chocolate. It's one of the components of cannabis or marijuana, but not the part that makes a person high. So why are so many people using CBD products? Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Caitlin Scarlott DeLuca, she works in um, pediatric rheumatology and integrative medicine, and she's here at the HealthLink on Air studio to discuss this. Thanks, Dr. Scarlett. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Now, we should differentiate that CBD is not the same thing as legalized marijuana, right? Right. So CBD, or cannabidiol, is one of the compounds found in the cannabis plant. Um, the cannabis plant um, specifically that CBD is extracted from is often referred to as the hemp plant. Now, hemp and marijuana are in the same family. You can kind of think of it as cannabis. The cannabis um, plant is the mother and hemp and marijuana are kind of like cousin plants. Um, the cannabidiol is extracted from the hemp plant and it does not contain much THC. THC is another compound found in cannabis that is um, the psychoactive form. That's the um, part that gets you high. Exactly. And that's found okay. um, in higher concentrations in the marijuana plant. So the CBD, um, is, it cons- is it a wellness drug? Is it a pharmaceutical? Is it a recreational drug? What is it considered? Well, the jury's kind of out on that. Um, many people are using it these days um, to help with everything from sleep problems to anxiety to chronic pain, among other things. The industry right now is actually skyrocketing. Um, we see it in creams and lotions. We're seeing it in um, different forms of food, such as uh, candies, gummies, even bars, um, even coffee. And the surge is basically um, from the farm bill. There was a bill that was passed um, that affects the whole United States uh, that makes hemp um, legal to grow as long as it has less than 0.3% THC in it. Hemp, once a very common crop in the United States, kind of got lumped with marijuana and it was banned in 1937. But this bill has lifted the ban. Um, now, CBD derived from hemp, the, legal, the legality um, is rather unclear re- right now. The FDA does not regulate it, and the FDA says right now that um, it's still against law for CBD manufacturers to make any health-related claims about their products. Oh. Uh, the FDA has actually warned companies not to add CBD to food. And the big reason why is because large scientific studies are behind the popularity of the surge. Uh, the FDA, um, also uh, a good note, um, we found that they're not really enforcing against it. Uh, the government's position is actually very confusing with all of this, and it will likely change in the future. So it's a very gray zone legally. It, it's a very anyway. gray zone legally. Actually, all 50 states um, have laws legalizing it with varying degrees of restriction. So, um, you know, one state can have different laws regarding CBD than another state. So, you know, this is an evolving thing. So um, the future, you know, holds uh, a lot of the answers about the legality. Well, setting the legality aside, let's talk about the, the health or the safety. Um, can I drive if I'm taking CBD? Can I Good think? questions. Absolutely good questions. One of the most common questions I hear is, can you get high off of CBD? Well, by itself, CBD does not cause a high. Um, in, human, in humans, CBD exhibits no um, effects indicate, indicate, indicative excuse me, of any abuse or dependent uh, dependence potential. 
and to date there's no real evidence of public health related problems associated with the use of pure CBD. But that doesn't mean that there aren't some problems with it. Um, you know, as a, as a physician, um, you know, that relies on sci big scientific um, studies um, to help guide with, um, you know, certain uh, prescribing or recommendations of different things for patients. Um, you know, as a physician, I struggle and other doctors struggle with, you know, um, what dose to recommend to patients. You know, without big um, research studies, we cannot pinpoint exact effective doses in the way we do with mm -hmm. other medications. Um, other problems are, um, you know, questions of interactions with other medications. You know, some studies have shown that CBD does affect certain medications like uh, a common blood thinner known as Coumadin in the, you know, in, um, in somebody's system. It can actually increase the level of Coumadin in the system. So we still do need to, um, you know, note that uh, even though this pro these products generally seem safe with, you know, very little side effects, we do need more research um, you know, to know more about it. Uh, children and adults or just adults? I mean, who's using these products? So right now uh, we see that all, you know, uh, all people, all, you know, children and adults, all ages basically um, are using these products because in most states you can buy them right over the counter. Um, there are some very good studies with CBD in regards to children with seizure disorders. And actually there is a, um, an FDA uh, approved product called um, Epidiolex uh, that is approved for um, two of the cruelest childhood seizure disorders called uh, Dravet syndrome and Lennox-Gastaut uh, syndrome. So that is on the market right now. And we might um, eventually and probably will see more medications come out like that with the research targeted at certain um, diseases. We've heard that marijuana use is discouraged in young adults because they're brains are still developing. Does that apply to the use of CBD products? Well, we don't really know. Um, you know, the research is still out on how CBD can affect um, the brain of young um, children, developing children. Um, the way that CBD works, it, it works with a system in our bodies called the endocannabinoid system. It's a system in our body that, um, you know, regulates um, certain inflammatory processes, um, different functions such as sleep, uh, the immune system responses, and pain. And we have receptors in our body um, that, you know, that are part of the system. Uh, they're, you know, the two major ones are the CB1 receptor and CB2 receptor, and they're found in the central nervous system, so our brains basically, as well as the peripheral nervous system and also on our immune cells and tissues. And CBD, as well as THC, work with this system and work with this, these receptors um, to, you know, to, to do what they're going to do, to um, inhibit infl inf sometimes inflammatory and neuropathic pain processes. That's what CBD is, you know, is thought to do. Um, so we don't, we don't know how this is going to affect the brain of young children. Uh, there is some preliminary research um, uh, that's very good research um, that shows that CBD um, you know, may help curb addictions to things like heroin and other dangerous, dangerous opioids. Um, there's also some preliminary evidence of efficacy in certain pain syndromes and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, I do think that there's great potential with CBD, and sometimes the potential outweighs, um, you know, the risks of, um, you know, potential harm. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, the jury's out on that too, that question too with children, and time will tell. So you mentioned the endocannabinoid system. That's part that's in, in our body. Exactly. That, is that, that part of the nervous system or it's not part of the nervous system, but it works with the nervous works with system. It. Okay. Yes, the endocannabinoid system. So we as humans actually make certain compounds similar, uh, you know, we call them endocannabinoids uh, that are similar to these exocannabinoids, CBD and THC being two of them. So you mentioned seizures um, and pain, and uh, maybe uh, maybe the CBD is being used to help people struggling with addiction. Are there other uses? Anti-anxiety, antipsychotic. What what else are people trying to solve when they when they reach for the CBD? Right. Well, we see people using. Um, using these products for um, things that I mentioned, such as sleep and arthritis, chronic pain, seizures. Um, but we also see people using um, it for things such as anxiety and depression and, you know, overwhelming um, stress. So 
um, you know, we've had a lot of good claims using these products that it's been helping people a lot. So people are saying that it's working. Oh, people are saying that it's, it's, you know, it's doing miraculous things. It's helping all of these things. And there's also, you know, very few um, side effect complaints, um, you know, from what I can see that's out there. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Pediatrics, Dr. Caitlin Scarlett DeLuca, about the growing availability and uses for CBD products. Now, from what I've read, ca- cannabis has been used as medicine in India going back to like the 1500s. And more recently, apparently, it's been used as a treatment for infantile seizures, rheumatism, and spasms caused by tetanus. So it's, it's we're not talking about something new. This has been around. Right. Um, and yet there's still a lot we need to know about it. Um, do we know, is CBD addictive or habituating? There's no evidence that it's addictive or habituating. So, okay, so that's a point in its favor for safety because it's not going to get you addicted. Exactly, from what we've seen. Okay. Uh, well, what would you advise patients who want to try CBD products? If, they're, if they've got, I don't know, chronic pain and they say, will this help me? What would you say to them? Well, I think we have to be very careful. And, you know, as uh, physicians, you know, that, um, you know, want to promote, you know, the, the healthiest things for our patients and, you know, recovery from any kind of condition, we have to be careful. I do think that it depends on the patient situation. So, um, you know, if a patient is having pain um, from something like inflammatory rheumatoid arthritis, I think the first thing that needs to happen is to get, you know, the disease process under control. Um, if patients try to do that and they try, you know, X, Y, and Z therapies and they're still not um, responding, I think it's um, a reasonable option with some safety guidelines. So I think that um, I think that patients need to be very careful the products that they buy, what companies those products are from. As we started talking um, at the beginning of the talk, we noted that the FDA is not regulating uh, these products. Um, so the companies. Um, have to be closely looked at, you know, to make sure that patients are getting the product that the company claims that they're giving to them. So how do you know? I mean, uh, you can read the label, but if the FDA is not regulating it or no one's really regulating it, how do you know the label's accurate? Well, I think that um, you need to dive into the company that the product is from. So you have to do your own research. Make sure that the company is a reputable company, make sure the uh, company has their products tested by a third party. Um, and, you know, I would say start very, very low and go slow. I'm not saying it's for everybody, but if a patient, you know, gets to that point, uh, t- they should talk to their doctor about it. Now, the, there's different, like we've mentioned, there's there's gummies, there's um, there's lotions and oils, there's pills. Which, which one... I don't know, would you advise someone to start with? Is I think it depends on what's going on with the patient. Um, as you you know, as you just said, there are so many different products out there, and I do think that patients also need to be careful about using many of the different products because that's another um, that's another point that we we we're, we don't know at this point whether a cumulative dose from let's just say gummies and pills and creams will have any effect. There have been some reported side effects of CBD, um, including things like nausea, fatigue, and even irritability. Um, they haven't been commonly reported, but, you know, that's something that, um, you know, needs to uh, be looked out for. Nausea, fatigue, irritability. So if someone's sort of experimenting with this to see if it could help them, if they notice those things, that, that may be why. It may be tied to the CBD. Exactly. Um, are there people that need to, you, you mentioned someone who's taking a blood thinner like Coumadin. Are there people like that who need sort of extra precaution? Um, Oh, absolutely. As I um, noted, I think that anybody who considers this should definitely run it by their primary care physician or um, their other doctors, um, just so, you know, the uh, medical provider can look at their list of medications and see if there's any medications that uh, may potentially um, uh, be affected by taking CBD. Now, you don't need a prescription for this. No, this it's unlike not. medical marijuana. Um, and in the state of New York, medical marijuana is legal, but you have to, it's regulated and you have to go through a process. And medical marijuana is, um, it's different in CBD because it has the higher THC um, content in it. 
And you get that from a pharmacist. Yes, you get that. The medical marijuana, you get that from a special medical marijuana uh, pharmacy or dispensary after you, um, after, you know, your provider, um, you know, signs you up, registers you for medical marijuana program if you have one of the several conditions that New York State allows. Now, if you were um, taking medical marijuana, would you not, would you advise them not to use CBD at the same time? Would that be... It depends on the patient and what they're using the medical marijuana for. Medical marijuana, um, by definition, has some CBD in it, but there are certain ratios of CBD to THC um, that encompasses medical marijuana. And, you know, a patient that's on medical marijuana, let's just say for... um, pain or seizure disorder, they might want to use, um, you know, they might not want to hold off on their medical marijuana and use a CBD product for something, you know, else such as, you know, anxiety or, you know, sleep problems secondary to anxiety. So again, depends on the patient, depends on the situation. It sounds like it's really worth a conversation with your provider. Absolutely. If you have, um, you know, if you have a condition that's not being controlled by, you know, standard therapies and um, you're reaching out, um, I think it's, um, worth a discussion with your doctor, you know, um, with the whole opioid epidemic right now too going on. I think if your problem is chronic pain, it's definitely worth a discussion with your physician. Well, that's good information. I appreciate it. My guest has been Dr. Caitlin Scarlett DeLuca, an assistant professor of pediatrics at Upstate, specializing in rheumatology. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, an emergency physician discusses head injuries. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Head injuries or traumatic brain injuries can happen in a number of ways, and today we're going to learn all about diagnosis and treatment from Dr. Bill Palo. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine and of public health and preventive medicine at Upstate. He's also the residency program director of emergency medicine. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Palo. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the definition of traumatic brain injury. Is it the same thing as head injury? Mostly, yes. I mean, a head injury is anything that'll bring you to an emergency department after being struck in the head. So that can be anything from falling down and striking your head in the shower to a football player who sustains a forceful injury to their head. Um, We kind of differentiate that from traumatic brain injury. A head injury can lead to a traumatic brain injury, but a traumatic brain injury generally is going to be something that happens to the brain organic substance itself. So that can be anything from bleeding into the brain, um, something minor like concussion. Um, But these will have clinical manifestations that we'll find when we see the patient and the patient comes into the emergency department. So traumatic brain injury or TBI um, maybe is a more severe head injury? Yeah, you can think of it that way. A, A traumatic brain injury is going to be when there's actual changes to the brain substance, be it something that we can see on a CAT scan, like bleeding into the brain, or something that we can only manifest clinically like a concussion where you might have something like post concussive syndrome, where you can have vertigo or feeling like you're spinning, personality changes, sleep-wake disturbances, uh, nausea, vomiting, and migraines, things like that. A constellation of symptoms that suggests that there's an injury to the brain that we might not be able to see on a CAT scan or an MRI. All right. And then not to confuse things more, but concussion is a brain injury, isn't it? Or? Concussion is a brain injury. As far as we can tell, concussion is a brain injury, and it's probably damage to the neurons of the brain, but we can't really see it right now with most of the conventional things that we use on a clinical level. We can't see it with a CAT scan. We can't see it with an MRI. There's some evidence at autopsy studies that there's changes to the brain that happen from concussion and certainly chronic concussions. So what we do, since we can't see it, we know that there's a constellation of symptoms that you'll have, kind of what I talked about before, which we call post-concussive syndrome that you'll manifest with should you come to the emergency department with a concussion. So it's really a clinical diagnosis. You say you were hit in the head 
and you manifest these symptoms, we'll tell you that's a concussion because we don't really have a way of seeing it, but we know it's damage to the brain. We just can't see it. So we just look for how you act and how you respond okay. after the head injury. Okay. Now, how often is it that you see it working in the emergency department, uh, someone that comes in with some type of head injury? Is uh, it a common thing? Yeah, it's pretty common. Um, so it's, uh, it's, year-round with seasonal variations. So what I mean by that is uh, in here in central New York, we have a football season that occurs. So we see a lot of head injuries during football season. Uh, we see it all the time in individuals who are workers, people who fall off of things. And we see it with motor vehicle accidents year-round. So it's a year-round thing, but we see little spikes in, in, in visits to the emergency department based upon what people are doing. Um, so soccer season, football season, whatnot, we see those head injuries. And then off season in the winter, uh, we're going to see a lot of head injuries from things like sports and uh, ATVs and snowmobiles. Slipping on the ice. And... Slipping on the ice. Okay. Yeah. Shoveling snow or going on your roof to get off some snow and then falling off your roof. So lots of different reasons to come. But it's, it's year round and we do see a lot of head injuries. Plus, we have a lot of highway systems in central New York and we'll see head injuries from motor vehicle collisions. Uh, and the injuries that you described, it seems like that would affect different age ranges. That's so this true. could be children all the way up to That's seniors. That's true. Right? Yeah. There's really no thing that prevents you from head injuries. There's really nothing in terms of risk stratification that will say you're less likely to have it. There's just more likely to have it than others. So participation in sports, prone to falls in the elderly, um, very young individuals who um, are around stairs or around things that they can fall off of like decks. So we see it in all age groups. Um, certainly some people are more predisposed than others, but there's very little that prevents you from getting it other than some preventative measures if you're, if you're participating in sports or riding bicycles and things of that nature. Now, you mentioned a, a lot of the different common causes of traumatic brain injury. Um, a, a few years ago, I remember an actress that died after she she was standing and she slipped and fell and hit her head yeah. um, and died from it. So I don't know. I wouldn't think that someone who just fell from standing could have such a severe injury. And then you see others mm -hmm. that... Right. Yeah. Most young people who fall from standing won't have severe injury. It can happen. Anything can happen. Um, but most people that have a fall from stand that have a severe injury generally are older or what we consider an elderly population. There are other things that will risk will uh, elevate your risk with that too. If you're on a blood thinner, you take aspirin or Coumadin or any of the new anticoagulant, uh, anticoagulants like Eliquis and you fall and even sustain what most people would consider a minor head injury. Um, from a fall from standing and bumping your head, you're much more likely to have a bad outcome because of the anticoagulants that you take and much more prone to bleeding because okay. you're on something that thins out your blood, as it were. So most young people and healthy people fall from standing won't be much. Skiing accidents, things like that, we'll see with a, with a force. Um, but it can happen. Um, what cap what I think the story that you're referring to, um, somebody had what's called an epidural hematoma. Um, so there's a blood vessel, there's lots of blood vessels in your brain, obviously, but there's some big arteries that are on the sides of your brain. Um, and if you hit those sides of your head and we get a little bit more concerned about the side of your head, um, you can start bleeding out of an artery and form this hematoma or collection of blood. Um, and we call it an epidural hematoma because that particular area, it's just the space it's in. Epidural means outside of the dura and hematoma means collection of blood. Now what happens with those people that we worry about is they hit their head and they may pass out and then they have what we call a lucent period where they're back to normal, everything seems to be okay. And then they have almost like a second passing out again or a second loss of consciousness. So that happened with the, I forgot the name of the actress who was in a skiing accident. Natasha Richardson. Yes, that's, okay. this, that's exactly that's... what she succumbed to. So she had that period where she was awake and feeling better and then had it been again. But mostly we're going to see that in high impact injuries, uh, what we call temporal bone, that's the area above the ear injuries, um, or in individuals who are anticoagulated. Uh, but the other thing is going to be high velocity impact. So motor vehicle collisions, the skiing accident certainly is a high velocity impact. Um, but risky people from fall from standing are generally going to be older people that fall from standing or something that gives them a risk. When you talk about a trauma, uh, a car accident or something like that, if you suffer head trauma, does, does your skull fracture? Does the bone itself break? So it can. 
Um, it certainly can. We do see associated skull fractures with traumatic brain injury. Um, we kind of classify them based upon where they are. So uh, the back of your head being the occipital area, the front of your head, your frontal bone, and the temporal area. All these different areas have different risk factors, and the confirmation of the fracture matters too. So when we talk about depressed skull fractures, that'd be like if you got hit in the head with a baseball and it pushed that fracture fragment towards your brain some, non-depressed skull fractures, which uh, are generally line up, they're just kind of broken as opposed to moved. Um, so yeah, we can see that. And then associated with that, because your skull is contiguous, we see um, sinus fractures in the front, we can see facial fractures that go along with it, fractures into the orbital bone, fractures into the nose or the sinuses. So they all give different risk factors depending upon where you got hit and how you got hit. Interesting. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Bill Palo. He's an associate professor of emergency medicine, and we're discussing head injuries. Um, I wanted to ask you about the guidelines for pre-hospital management of TBI, the things paramedics and EMTs are supposed to do for patients who have suspected head injuries. So there's a couple of things that we know. Um, we know that head injured brains bleeding into your brain, what have you, the area around that area really needs oxygen to kind of survive. Um, and what it's especially vulnerable to, since that area around it has these vulnerable cells, um, is it does not like low oxygen levels. So one thing to do is maintain normal oxygen levels. We don't need to maintain super normal oxygen levels, but we want to attain normal oxygen levels. The second thing that the brain does not like, for the same reason you can think of it as blood supply to these neurons that are very vulnerable. They want to get oxygen, and to get oxygen there, they want blood flow. So how do you do that is you maintain normal blood pressures. Um, what you're always concerned about is too low a blood pressure. So you want to maintain normal blood pressure. There's a lot of controversy around hypertension, too much blood pressure, and where you manage that and what number you should shoot for if you need to lower it at all and whether or not you should lower it at all. Uh, but leaving that aside, what we definitely know is that low blood pressure is bad. And then finally, what we don't want to do is constrict blood vessels. So we don't want the blood vessels to constrict so they don't... Um, supply the blood flow that we're looking for. So that has to do a lot with how you breathe and your acid base status. So we want to make sure that's kind of normal as well. So those things especially. And then one really minor intervention that makes a big difference. If you're bleeding into your brain, you get elevated pressures in your brain. And it sounds so simple, but actually instead of laying people flat on their backs, having them so that they can sit up a little bit, what we call elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees, actually reduces the amount of pressure going to your brain and might actually help them as well. So we look for those things. Mostly what we're doing is getting them to good uh, neurological centers like SUNY Upstate and making sure that they're safe beforehand and we're making sure that we're making those parameters as normal as possible. So we want to maintain a normal blood pressure, don't want it to be low. We want to maintain a normal oxygen, we don't want it to be low. We want to maintain a normal acid base status and we like to elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees. So are those things that people can do while they're waiting for the ambulance? Um, uh, just to make sure the person's breathing? They can, yeah. Okay. yeah. That's, I would say that first aid in that particular case is the most important thing for most bystanders and alerting the 911 system as soon as possible. So the basic things that we would teach you in a CPR course, uh, check for breathing, check for pulse, um, identify somebody who can call 911 and then stay with them um, would be the most important things for a bystander to do. We don't like bystanders who don't know about uh, potential concomitant spine fractures to do things like elevate people until we've had a chance until or a professional's okay. had a chance to take a look at them. That makes sense. Well, not every head injury needs to go to the emergency department though, right? So how Correct. do you determine if you need to go to the hospital? That's a good question. Um, I think one thing that you can always say is if you have any of the risky things we talked about, you're over 65, you're on blood thinners, um, you're under the age of two, under the age of one, um, you know, those types of things I think are reasonable to be checked out by a healthcare provider. If you're a healthy individual um, and you've got none of the risk factors we talked about, you're not on anything that thins out your blood, you don't have a bleeding disorder, you don't have hemophilia or whatnot, um, and you sustain what we call a minor head injury. Um, so you were struck in the head, maybe you didn't have any loss of consciousness, you weren't nauseous or vomiting when you were done, um, you don't have any amnesia to the event, then you might be able to get away without coming to the emergency department and being evaluated. Um, some of these things we consider risk factors that I talked about, loss of consciousness, vomiting, and whatnot. Independently, they don't predict that much, but the more of those things that you add up, you lost consciousness and you're nauseous, you lost consciousness and you're nauseous and you don't remember it, that starts to be more and more risky. Um, so 
Certainly, you're struck in the head, you feel okay, you maybe have a minor headache or a, a little lump, I'm, we're not as concerned about you. But that said, the emergency department, I don't expect a lot of lay people to be physicians. So if you have any concern whatsoever, we're open 24 seven for us to evaluate you and tell you everything's okay or tell you something more needs to be done. That's what we do all the time. And head injuries tend to, I mean, they can be scary for they certainly a, a can. parent looking at their child bleeding or what. Oh, know, they so. certainly can. So walk me through, if you will, um, when a person arrives at the emergency department um, with a suspected head injury, what sorts of tests or what sorts of treatments would they maybe face? Sure. So one of the things that I think it's important for people to note is that when we see you, the first thing that we do is we use clinical guidelines to determine whether or not you have a severe head injury and whether or not we need to do something like do a CAT scan. So for head injuries, we don't really do MRIs, we do CAT scans. And that's important for the public to understand that CAT scans come with a lot of radiation. So if they didn't, we could just willy-nilly CAT scan everybody that walked into the emergency department and have no concern and find out everybody who's got a severe injury. But that's not the reality, um, and it does come with radiation, and we worry about that, especially in the younger individuals and kids that fall and kids that hit their head because they have a lot more time to manifest that. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to do some clinical risk assessments. And that may mean we tell you everything looks fine fine, just go home. And it's not because we're not doing anything. It's because we've used a risk assessment tool to say you don't meet this risk. We have different risk assessment tools in kids, and we have different risk assessment tools in adults. So if we do, however, find that you do meet a moderate risk, then there's a branch point. We might say, what we're going to do now is we're going to bore you and make you sit in this emergency apartment for the next six hours. And if everything clears up and you don't feel any worse, we're not going to do anything. So that's kind of a conservative thing because you're on the cusp. Maybe you need a CAT scan, but you probably don't. So what we're going to do is we're going to watch you. And if anything changes, we're going to CAT scan you. So that's kind of a moderate risk. And then if we think you're high risk, we're just going to go ahead and probably do a CAT scan. Um, and we'll do a CAT scan either of your head or of your face or of your neck or all three, depending upon what kind of head injury you sustained. And then depending on what that shows determines what more has to be done. Correct. Correct. Whether or not we're calling somebody like a neurosurgeon to see you or we're calling a neurologist potentially to see you or we're just saying we, we've found this and it means that and therefore we're going to observe you again and or we found a little bit of bleeding into your head. Uh, it doesn't look like a big deal, but we're going to need to repeat a CAT scan in six hours to see whether or not there's stability or not. Let me ask you, since you um, are in charge of training the residents, are there are there things that you teach the residents to be on the lookout for um, in pe people that have traumatic brain injuries? Sure. Um, the What we utilize are those clinical risk assessment tools. Um, and they're going to be anything from things like, were you amnestic to the event? Do you remember the event? Where is the head trauma? By way of example, in kids, we put a lot more weight into head trauma above the ears or the uh, hematoma collection of blood above the ears than we do in the front. The front, the frontal bones where a lot of kids and toddlers will hit their heads repeatedly, much thicker than some of the other areas and less risky because of the blood vessel supply there. Mm. So we're going to look at where it is. We're going to feel, by way of example, if you have your six-month-old that came in and has a, has a hematoma, we're going to feel the hematoma and see if we feel a fracture fragment. Um, in older individuals or in adults, we might look at things like what was the velocity? How high did you fall from? Was there something, was your passenger severely injured? Did your airbags deploy? Um, did you have to be pulled out of your vehicle? Did somebody have to come and cut the vehicle open to get you out of your vehicle? Did you fall from a height of greater than yourself? You know, are you six feet tall and you fell from over six feet? So those sorts of risk factors are going to kind of be what we're looking at. And then we're going to look at you and we're going to do kind of an assessment. Are you awake, alert, oriented, talking to me, acting normal? Or are you a little confused? Or are you even not acting yourself? We use that something called the GCS scale, kind of determining how you're acting and how you're globally awake and conscious. So we're using that constellation of things, plus our kind of our history of seeing people that look like you and putting you into those categories and saying, you fit this category, you fit that category. Sure. Neat. Well, very interesting. Thank you so much for talking about this with me. My guest has been emergency physician Bill Palo from Upstate University Hospital. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Nina Bannett is a poet and professor of English at NYC College of Technology. Her complex and beautiful poem, My Mother and Ellen West, allude to an early patient of psychoanalysis, Ellen West. 
who became only the sum of her many diagnoses, none of which ever explained or contained her. My mother and Ellen West. In the hospital, I watched them objectify, reduce her to a large mass of unknown origins, students coming in to chat and learn from the end of someone dear. Thank you for taking the pain out of my day. In another context, her assertion could have functioned as a suicide note. Ellen West leaves the hospital and dies, internalizes her desire not to be. The clinician in each of us wants to reach out, smooth over the soul, strive for fullness. An attachment to me. I had her own notes of the self. I threw them out. I thought the time she spent on them wasteful, the categorization, all that mindfulness, overwhelming inner material that I could have fashioned, a walk through fire. The hospital is an object that cannot contain the subject. All my life I've known this fear. The object is the subject. My mother was a series of index cards where she recorded feelings, the nurse's psychiatric notes, treatment plans, all these organized around an interior, the self. Not just its parts, but her whole. I am a second person from a first person who changed the first person to a second manic person, then a third depressed person. I was interior, then exterior, then interior as exterior. She was my interior, my mother, the application of a series of psychiatric principles my walk through her fire, my inner material. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an overview of glaucoma. If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink On Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.